Don't forget that I will be in Atlanta on the first Saturday in December. Check the show notes for the link to get tickets for this massive three-part live show, case discussion, and meetup that I will be emceeing. So many great shows will be there, and I think you'll love it. In November 1994, three inmates went into the showers of a prison gym to clean. 20 minutes later, two were fatally injured. One death, that of Jeffrey Dahmer, made headlines, and the other, Jesse Anderson, would be a footnote. And if he was a footnote, his victim became a footnote of a footnote. Today, we tell her story. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Hello and welcome to Crime Lines. We are back on schedule after multiple Halloween specials and we will be weekly through November. And then in December, we will be doing 12 days of Crime Lines again. That is 12 shorter daily episodes in the month of December. So we are looking at 17 episodes through the end of the year and that doesn't count Patreon bonus content or any bonus episodes I do with other podcasters. We have a lot to look forward to, but let's go ahead and get into today's episode. I want to thank Megan for suggesting it a while ago. Obviously, with all the Dahmer talk with the new series out, it reminded me of this case and bumped it up on the list. A major source for this episode was a paper called They're Moving North by Benjamin Schultz. He was an absolute saint in uploading the police files he used in his research as well as some archived newspaper articles that I didn't have access to elsewhere. I'll leave his link at the top of the sources because his paper does go way more into depth about the climate of the area at the time and the media coverage that shaped the public's understanding of the case. This starts in 1983 when 24-year-old Barbara Lynch met 26-year-old Jesse Anderson in Chicago. Barbara had grown up in Chicago, in a suburb actually, in a large Christian family with eight children. Jesse was not from Chicago, but he was from Illinois. He grew up out in Alton, which is on the border of Illinois and Missouri, just north of St. Louis. Barbara was smart and friendly, but also known to be a private person. She tended to deal with things on her own, though she was very close to her six brothers and one sister. Jesse, however, was said to have not made much of an impression on anyone when he was younger. Years later, when asked about him, absolutely none of his high school teachers had any memory of him. But he had made some sort of impression on Barbara when they met. It may have been because Jesse grew to be a bit of a salesman, charismatic, if not a bit arrogant. At the time they met, Jesse was attending school for his business administration degree. He was also still married to his first wife, Deborah. They had been married for a few years and had a son together. Jesse and Deborah had met while they were living in Iowa. After high school, Jesse went to college on a scholarship, but either it wasn't renewable or he didn't qualify for it to be renewed because he had to drop out when the money stopped. 
It was after leaving school that he moved to Iowa. Deborah was the sister of Jesse's coworker, but this coworker, Bill, was not thrilled that they started dating. He didn't trust Jesse, and nothing Jesse did in this relationship changed that. Bill would hear about expensive outings, Deborah would go on with Jesse, and Bill was fully aware Jesse couldn't afford it. He knew what Jesse made working at the pizza restaurant with him. So either Jesse was living beyond his means or he was getting money illicitly. It turned out to probably be the latter. It doesn't sound like the owner of the restaurant kept too close of an eye on the register, but one day he put money in there and when he went back to it later, $65 of that money was missing. Adjusting for inflation, that's more like $200 in today's money. Jesse denied taking it, but the owner was sure he did. There are some inconsistencies on people's memories about whether Jesse quit in a huff over the accusation or if he was fired. Either way, he left the job, but no criminal complaint was filed. According to Deborah, this wasn't the only alleged theft Jesse may have been involved in. He told her about times in high school when he and a friend would break into houses to steal things. But he said he had never been caught. Jesse and Deborah were married for about four years. And according to Deborah, the marriage was a difficult one because of how controlling Jesse was. He would keep her on a strict budget, though he would buy himself whatever he wanted. If Deborah went out to dinner with friends, he would accuse her of cheating. Sometimes he would show up where she said she would be to make sure she was there and she was only with female friends. And if he didn't show up, he would call and have her paged to the phone. One time she didn't hear the page, so the restaurant told Jesse she wasn't there. Jesse flipped out when Deborah got home yelling and threatening her with divorce, which wasn't the first or only time he did that. But like every other time, he would basically wake up in the morning like nothing happened. Jesse would also lie to Deborah about random things like her work schedule. Now we have schedules posted in apps on our phones, but back then you had to either get a paper copy of the printed schedule or call in to get it. Jesse would get the information, but then tell Deborah her schedule was something other than what it was. It's not clear to me if he did this to try to get her in trouble at work, or if he was gaslighting her, making her think things were one way, confusing her about how things really were. So we have angry outbursts, lying, and financial abuse. Deborah also suspected there was infidelity, though she never could confirm it. When Jesse decided to go back to school for a degree in business administration, he moved their little family to Chicago. And in 1983, Deborah took their son to Iowa to visit with her parents. While she was gone, Jesse filed for divorce. He claimed Deborah's, quote, extreme and repeated mental cruelty was the reason. Deborah said it was the opposite. Jesse was the cruel one. 
The divorce would take two years to finalize, during which time Jesse said he would kill Deborah before he paid any alimony. In the end, Deborah was given custody of their son, and shortly after the divorce was over, Jesse and Barbara married. The timeline here is a little fuzzy in that Jesse filed for divorce out of the blue around the time he met Barbara, but it's not clear if it was shortly before or shortly after or if there was some overlap in these relationships. Within a year or so of the divorce and the remarriage, Jesse got a job in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area, and he and Barbara moved out there. Aside from Barbara sending Deborah a note with their updated address, Deborah really didn't hear from Jesse after he left town. Jesse worked as a salesman at the Lakeside Oil Company, but he also formed his own oil sales company on the side. Between the two, he made good money, around $150,000 a year in late 80s, early 90s money. So loading that up in the inflation calculator, we're talking over $320,000 a year. Jesse and Barbara bought a nice house on over 20 acres of land outside of Cedarburg, Wisconsin, which is a suburb to the north of Milwaukee. The couple welcomed three children in the next five years. Jesse excelled at his job as a salesman, but he had other dreams. At one point, he applied to join the FBI and the CIA. He wasn't hired, and records like that are not public, but we do know he made it far enough in the process that an FBI agent was doing background checks on him. And we know this because his ex-wife, Deborah, was someone who was interviewed by the FBI in regards to his application. She told them straight out that she did not think he would make a good agent. We don't know if Deborah's interview had any influence over him not getting hired. We just know that he didn't get hired. In 1991, Barbara and Jesse had their third child, and following it, Barbara dealt with depression. Some of this would have been postpartum depression, but some of it was also grief-related. Her younger brother died unexpectedly in an accident. And rather than getting support from her husband, Barbara was being met with criticism, mostly around her weight. In January of 1992, Barbara decided to go see a marriage counselor about it. She went alone because Jesse refused to go. And Barbara told the therapist that she was limited in what she could open up about because Jesse didn't just refuse to go, he forbade her from talking about him in the session. A marriage counseling session with only one willing party is already difficult. Some marriage therapists won't even see one person, but instead will refer them on to individual counseling. But to have a session with only one spouse who can't even talk about the other one, is so limiting that the amount of help given can't be much. The therapist did talk to Barbara in this session, and Barbara did try to stick to what she thought she contributed negatively to the relationship, and that was her weight. After having her third baby in five years, and entering her 30s, and struggling with grief, Barbara was about 25 pounds over what she usually weighed. 
and Jessie was incredibly critical of her because of it. She promised to him that she would work to lose the 25 pounds by the end of the year, but she asked that he stop putting her down over it because that wasn't helping. But it turns out it wasn't just put-downs. He was also policing her eating. One time he found a candy wrapper in the trash and confronted Barbara about it. It was from one of the children, and she told him as much, but he thought Barbara was lying to him. He would get angry with her if she ate any sweets at all. Barbara attended that one session with a therapist, but called to cancel the next one, saying she had childcare issues, and she never called to reschedule. We don't know the reason Barbara stopped going to therapy, but we do know it's not because the issues were resolved. Her friend Patricia saw more issues surrounding food in the months after the counseling session. Barbara had a regular group of friends who got together to play cards, and they had a dinner party with the husbands as well. When it was time for dessert, everyone took their cake into the family room to sit and eat. But Barbara asked Patricia if she would stay in the dining room with her. Barbara said she didn't want to go in the family room because Jesse was in there and he would see her eating a dessert and get upset. Patricia said, of course, she would stay with her, so they chatted while eating their cake. Patricia noticed that anytime someone came in the room, Barbara would push her plate away. When she would see it wasn't Jessie, she would go back to eating her dessert. Patricia said it got so bad that once Barbara took a couple of little chocolate mint candies and ate them in the pantry so Jessie wouldn't see. Jessie cared very much about appearances and appearing like the perfect family and the perfect couple, and he couldn't do that if he didn't have a perfectly thin wife. However, most people didn't see the side of him because, again, he cared very much about appearances, so he rarely presented anything publicly other than the perfect family man. Other than some people finding him a little cocky or arrogant, people thought he was a great provider and husband and father. The family had a beautiful home. They had sweet and well-behaved children who sat in church every week, and both parents were active in the community. Jesse even ran for local county office, losing by just 12 votes in April of 1992. Except for a few friends that Barbara confided in, everyone else thought things were perfect. Even Barbara's family did not know what was going on inside the marriage. So her parents thought Jesse was being a good husband when he called in March 1992 and asked them to babysit for a long weekend. He wanted to take Barbara to Jamaica for their anniversary since she had been so depressed since the loss of her brother. He said she started expressing a fear of death, and he thought that a relaxing trip away from the kids might give her some rest and peace. When they got back from the trip, Barbara's parents thought it sounded like they spent most of their weekend away apart. 
Barbara stayed by the pool while Jesse was out golfing most of the time. They did go on a hike in the mountains, but Jesse told Barbara's parents that Barbara got fearful of dying again, which he thought may be because of the height. But that's not what Barbara told her friends about the hike. She told her friend Mary that the trip was miserable. And Jesse pressured her to climb up a waterfall even though she didn't feel safe because she was in sandals and it was slippery. Patricia, the same friend from the cake-eating situation, said Barbara called it the worst vacation she had ever been on. She was upset about the waterfall hike, saying that Jesse called her a wimp for turning back. She also said Jesse had taken her into remote areas and she didn't feel like she was safe with him. She told Patricia she would not be going on vacation with Jesse alone again and would only do family vacations that involved the children. So Jesse was saying that Barbara's fear was unwarranted anxiety, but Barbara was saying that Jesse put her in unsafe situations. As far as rest and relaxation goes, the Jamaica trip was a bust. Back home from their trip for about a month, Jesse and Barbara made plans for a date night for Tuesday, April 21st, 1992. Barbara scheduled their usual teenage babysitter, but called her earlier in the day to ask if she could pick her up a little earlier than planned. Barbara thought they were going to see a movie at the North Shore Theater, which is where they usually went but Jesse wanted to go to Northridge Mall for the movie instead so that they could stop at the TGI Friday's restaurant afterward. The babysitter was available to be picked up a few minutes earlier, so there was no conflict. Once at the house, the babysitter got all of the instructions, which she said were incredibly detailed down to the minute for the kids' routine, and then Jesse and Barbara left. They saw the 7 o'clock movie and then drove over to the TGA Fridays to snack on some appetizers before going home. They were inside for about 40 minutes. Barbara called their babysitter from the restaurant and said they were heading home and would be there in about 20 minutes. They stepped out into the parking lot and headed towards their car. Around 10.15, witnesses heard screams from the parking lot behind the restaurant. Though there were no windows from the restaurant looking at that part of the parking lot, there was an apartment complex across the street, and some people looked out. One was a 25-year-old man named Daniel. The screams he heard came from a woman, and she was yelling, Help me. Thinking someone was being sexually assaulted, he ran down five flights of stairs to the apartment building's parking lot, assuming that is where the screams were coming from. When he got down there and looked around, he realized the screams were not coming from the parking lot of the apartment complex, 
but rather from the TGI Fridays across the street. So he ran over there, finding Jesse Anderson on the ground bleeding and holding a knife in his right hand. He said that they had been robbed and his wife had also been stabbed. Daniel then saw Barbara, absolutely covered in blood from the chest up and partially under the van that was parked next to the Andersons' car. Daniel ran into the TGI Fridays to get someone to call 911, but it turned out others who had heard Barbara's screams from the apartment complex had already called, and first responders were on their way. The manager at the restaurant asked for any customer with medical training to head out to the parking lot, and fortunately there was a nurse and two EMTs there. They ran out to help. Jesse told them, too, that they had been robbed and stabbed. He was hurt, but Barbara was worse, and he begged them to help her. At the scene, Jesse identified the attackers as two black men. There was an L.A. Clippers hat on the ground, and Jesse said he had knocked it off one of the attackers during the struggle. When the attackers fled the scene, Jesse said the knife was still in his chest, but he had pulled it out. So we have two items from the attackers, the L.A. Clippers hat and the knife. Jesse and Barbara were transported to the hospital. He was in serious condition with one of the stab wounds having hit his lung. But Barbara was in critical condition. She had been stabbed around 21 times, mostly in the face, and she also had defensive wounds to her hands. The most serious stab wound went into her brain, which would have required serious force and must have happened after she was already on the ground. With her injuries, Barbara was transferred to the neuro ICU unconscious and unable to make any statement. Jesse had three or four wounds to the upper left chest and shoulder area, as well as some cuts to his hands. He was awake and aware, and the police interviewed him that night at the hospital. Jesse said he had been walking to the car a few steps ahead of Barbara. He was about to unlock the door on the passenger side to let Barbara in. He was just about to put the key in the lock when he heard Barbara scream. He said as soon as he turned around, he was stabbed in the chest. He pushed the suspect away and the attacker's cap was knocked off. He said the man lunged at him two or three more times and he knew he had been stabbed again. Jesse could still hear Barbara screaming, but wasn't sure what was going on. There was a lot of confusion, but he remembered being on the ground with a knife in his chest and seeing Barbara next to the van parked by their car. He tried to help get her under the van to protect her from the continued assault, and the attackers did try to get them while they were under there. Jesse said the attackers fled, and he was trying to yell for help. He also at some point removed the knife from his chest and weakened. He could only wait for help to come. Though Jesse had told people at the scene that it was a robbery, he told the police the attackers never demanded money or went through his pockets after the attack. 
Barbara's purse and jewelry were still at the scene, so this doesn't really seem to have been a robbery. Jesse gave a description of the two attackers as best he could, and these descriptions would be sent out through the media. Obviously, Jesse was concerned about the kids who were home with a babysitter who must be wondering where they were. So some friends were notified to go over to the house and watch the children while letting the teenage babysitter go home. The police sent the knife and the cap to the lab, but they found no usable prints on the knife. They did find some hair on the cap. The following day, Barbara remained on life support, and Jesse was still in the hospital when the police questioned him again. They wanted to see if he remembered anything else now that he had some time for the adrenaline and fear to settle. And this time, Jesse's story did change a little. Instead of being attacked as soon as he turned around, Jesse said he saw Barbara being stabbed by the back of the van parked next to their car, and he went to her aid. This was when he was stabbed, and Barbara, on the ground, tried to crawl under the van. Jesse was hurt, and he tried to get to his car to get the car phone to call for help, but he didn't have the strength. He slumped to the ground and crawled over to Barbara to again try to help her get under the van even farther than she was able to get herself. It's important to point out that based on Barbara's injuries, it seemed unlikely she would have been moving much on her own at that point, so this part doesn't entirely ring true. The police then asked Jesse about something they found in Barbara's purse. It was a letter from Jesse to Barbara, and he identified it as a letter he wrote before they had married. It talked about how he had turmoil in his home life as a child after his father died and his mother remarried. And then his first marriage was deeply unhappy. Jesse wanted to build with Barbara the perfect marriage. It's not entirely clear why she was carrying it around seven years later. For the next several days of the investigation, every person who saw a black person near the mall that night called it into the police. Okay, maybe it wasn't everyone, but a lot of them did, and they account for a big chunk of the over 300-page police file. The media focused on this area of the Northridge Mall, which had changed over the years. While it did not have high crime, it had a reputation of being less safe than other areas of the city, simply because more Black people had been moving into the neighborhoods around it. The reputation of the area was being fed by racism, and Jesse's claim that two Black men attacked them confirmed what people thought they knew about the area even though the actual crime statistics didn't support it. Not everyone is even aware when their perceptions are being fueled by latent racism, myself included. I'm still learning all the ways that learned prejudices have shaped my perceptions, not just with race, but gender and sexuality as well. Gender is probably the biggest one as I was raised with a lot of overt misogyny. 
But in the case of Barbara Anderson and the mysterious black men of Northridge Mall, not all of this was latent racism. The source I mentioned at the top was called They're Moving North. That's a quote the author Benjamin Schultz pulled from an article. Northridge Mall was in the north part of Milwaukee and largely served the northern suburbs, and now it was undergoing a demographic shift. Their moving north referred blatantly to Black people moving up from the inner city of Milwaukee. It was said by a resident when asked about the attack on the Andersons. The media was quick to jump on this case some barely containing the racism in their reporting, and some actually calling it out. And what all this media attention did was generate a lot of black man walking at night tips coming in from the public to the police. But there was one witness I saw where their statement seems irrelevant. She said she heard the scream from Barbara and looked out her apartment window. She saw two or more men who she described as big black men running from the area of the TGI Fridays towards the Best Buy, which was in line with the direction Jesse said the men went in. The only obvious issue with her statement was that she heard a woman scream, looked out, and then saw the men running. With how long the attack would have taken, It seems unlikely the attackers would have been running away from the scene that soon. And we also have to ask ourselves if these could have been people running away because they heard screaming and they were running to safety. Not everyone is like that guy Daniel I mentioned who heard screams and ran right into the danger to try to help. A lot of people would have run away. In spite of all these tips coming in, the police were looking at Jesse Anderson as their person of interest from very early on. There were a few reasons, but one of the biggest was that Jesse's wounds didn't make a lot of sense. While one of his stab wounds was serious, two appeared to be hesitation wounds. Why would someone hesitate to stab Jesse too deeply? Jesse did have cuts on his hands, which could have been defensive wounds, but the placement didn't rule out that he cut himself on the knife while he was stabbing his wife. Another issue was that Barbara was stabbed 21 times. How slowly did Jesse move from the passenger door of the car to the back of the van where she was being attacked that the attacker was able to get in 21 stabbings. And speaking of those 21 stab wounds, the police were suspicious about the difference between Jesse's injuries and Barbara's. We have one person stabbed three or four times with only one serious injury, whereas we have the other person stabbed 21 times with incredible force. They committed a brutal and excessive attack on one person and a relatively minor one on the other. The police also had statements from other people that raised some of the red flags. One was a conflict in statements. Jesse said it was Barbara's idea to go to the Northridge Mall, but the babysitter who spoke to Barbara about it, she said they planned to go to North Shore, but it was Jesse 
who wanted to go to Northridge. If Jesse staged this, it would make sense for him to move it to somewhere that had a reputation for crime. Another red flag came from Barbara's doctor at the hospital. He had to give Jesse Barbara's prognosis, and it wasn't good at all. The neurologist told him that if life support were removed, Barbara would die very quickly, and that should she live, she would be in a persistent vegetative state. That was his medical opinion. And Jesse's response to that was to tell him to pull the plug. He said he didn't want her living like that. Usually, the neurologist advises people to wait a day or two to see if any improvements happen. Even if the doctor thinks it's unlikely or even impossible, if the patient doesn't appear to be suffering, it can help the family's process before making that final decision. And most families want that day or two to make sure they're making the right choice. It's what Barbara's family wanted, but Jesse was adamant, according to the neurologist, that Barbara be taken off life support immediately. Because the husband and the family were at odds with what to do, the neurologist did contact the hospital attorneys to get some advice. So all of this was documented at the time it happened. This all fueled suspicion, but the evidence that focused the police on Jesse came almost 24 hours to the minute after the attack, around 10.20 p.m. And it had to do with that L.A. Clippers cap left at the scene. A high school senior named Tommy called the police after seeing a news segment about the attack and said he thought it was his hat. The police asked him to come to the station, and he did. Tommy brought his girlfriend, Wanda, with him because she was a witness to what he had to say. The police separated them so they could interview them separately to see if their stories aligned and would hold up to questioning. Tommy told the investigators that he was at the mall on the day of the attack, but much earlier in the day. It was a bit before noon, and he and Wanda were there filling out job applications. They went around to various stores asking for applications and then sat down in the food court to fill them out. While they were doing that, a balding white man approached them and started up a conversation, saying that he was also there looking for a job. He said he had been given a task by one of the businesses he applied to to go out in the mall and buy something off of a stranger to prove he had what it took to do the job. The man asked to buy Tommy's L.A. Clippers hat. Tommy had never heard of any type of interview that sent you out into the mall doing challenges, but he was a teenager and he took this middle-aged man's story at face value. Tommy said, sure, and the man asked how much the hat was worth. This hat was a year old, it was dirty on the inside, and Tommy had once dropped it on the ground and got a car oil stain on it. So he said it was worth three or four dollars. The man offered him 20 for it. 
Wanda, Tommy's girlfriend, asked if the store had given him the money for that purchase, and he said yes. So Wanda and Tommy took the $20, and then they spent it the way two high school students would spend it. They got lunch at Taco Bell. They didn't think much of this until they saw the clipper hat on the evening news. After taking Tommy's statement and getting a description of the man, who looked like Jesse Anderson, they talked to Wanda. Their stories and descriptions of the man were nearly identical. Tommy was shown a photo array and picked Jesse out, saying that the mustache was identical and that the physical features were similar, but he stopped short of saying 100% that was the same man. Wanda looked at the same photo array, but she couldn't pick anyone out. Tommy then agreed to have hair samples taken to compare to the hairs found on the hat. He was then shown the hat, and he pointed out the oil stain that he had already mentioned. He said he was sure it was his hat. The police were sure as well, because this was not the first time they heard about the hat sale. About three hours before Tommy called them, they had received a call from a woman who said that her mother had witnessed someone selling a Clippers hat at the food court of the mall. She wouldn't give them her name because she feared for her safety and her mother's safety, but that call, logged before Tommy even came forward, helped confirm his story. And that's a good thing because Tommy was a young black man who owned the Clippers hat. He very well could have become a suspect if this had gone even slightly differently. So in the early morning hours of Thursday, April 23rd, the police were looking at Jesse Anderson while the media was still focused on the non-statistically supported dangers lurking in North Milwaukee. And later that same day, Barbara Anderson was removed from life support and died at the age of 33. This then became a homicide investigation, and Jesse Anderson was the only suspect. Though the police attempted to stay quiet about that, something got leaked to the media, except it wasn't quite accurate. They began reporting on Friday morning that Jesse was arrested. The police found out about this when Jesse and his sister contacted them, upset about this reporting. The authorities asked where they heard it exactly so that they could contact those media outlets and tell them to correct it, because they had not arrested Jesse. Not yet. The following day, Saturday, as Jesse was getting ready to be discharged from the hospital, he was arrested. And it took the media an extra day or two to report on it because they didn't know if it was for real this time. After Jesse was arrested, he was Mirandized and questioned again. They confronted him about Tommy's story over the sale of the cap, and Jesse denied it. He said he was not at the mall earlier that day, and he certainly didn't buy the hat. As for where he was at the time Tommy sold his hat to a mustached, balding white guy, Jesse's story isn't entirely solidified. He was at work from 7 a.m. until around 10 or 10.30. Then he went to his sporting goods store to buy fishing poles, and after he left there, he ran some errands. He stopped at a McDonald's and a dry cleaner's. 
Then he headed home, getting there around 12.30. The drive from the sporting goods store to the McDonald's would have him passing by the mall. And his timeline doesn't entirely preclude him from having stopped there. Jesse was asked by the police if Barbara had a life insurance policy, and he said yes, she did. But he didn't know how much it was until he called on Friday, the day after her death. He learned it was for $250,000. The police learned that this was a lie. The part about not knowing how much the policy was worth until after Barbara's death. That part was not true. It turned out Jesse had called the insurance company a month before the murder, asking details about the policy and to check if it was current and up-to-date on the premium payments. Not just that, but when the police searched the Andersons' home, they found the life insurance policy in a drawer in the bedroom. It was on the top of a pile of paperwork like someone had recently looked it over. And Jesse had not gone home between the hospital and his arrest. He hadn't been home since they left for the movie on Tuesday night. The police threw all of this evidence at him, but none of it pushed him to confess. So they tried something else. Barbara's funeral was held on Monday, April 27th, two days after Jesse's arrest. The investigators took Jesse to the funeral home ahead of time so he could spend 90 minutes saying his goodbyes to his wife. I thought that was very nice of them because we often see people denied the opportunity to go to funerals, even though they have not been convicted yet. What if they miss that and it turns out they weren't guilty of the murder? So I thought it was nice. But then I kept reading and I found out they were not trying to be nice. They were doing this to apply some pressure in the hopes that the reality of what he did would sink in. And that would have Jesse confessing by the end of the day. That didn't happen. But what did happen was the media saw him in handcuffs, and that's when the news of his arrest really started getting reported on. The day after the funeral on Tuesday, April 28th, the police got another break in the case. Remember, the killer left two items at the scene, an L.A. Clippers hat, which they found the origin of, and the murder weapon, the knife. The police had checked with a number of sporting goods stores and couldn't find anywhere that even stocked that knife, let alone sold it to anyone. It was a four-inch pocket knife marketed for fishing, and it had two blades. But the media publicity surrounding this knife worked the same way the publicity around the hat had worked. The owner of Jim's United Military Supply in Milwaukee called the police. He saw the knife on the news, and it looked like a knife he had sold in his store. He remembered it because they only ever had three in stock, and they sat on the shelf for months. It was kind of a dud product. When Jim first saw this knife on the news, for some reason he thought the one on the news had three blades and the one he had sold only had two. His wife told him to go ahead and call it in anyway, and it's a good thing he did because the knife was a match. 
the police were able to confirm with the supplier that that knife was sold to Jim for his shop. And not only that, it was the only place in the area that had ordered any of those knives. The clerk who sold the knife told the police that the man who bought it looked like Jesse Anderson, though the formal identification was a little iffy. That knife didn't have a lot of information as far as forensic evidence went, but there were other things that they found. One was Barbara's blood on Jesse's clothing, but that could be explained by the version of his story where he tried to help her get under the van. It was the processing on the Clippers hat that was more useful. The police knew it was Tommy's hat, mostly because of the oil stain he mentioned, and he was able to point out on the hat. But a hair analysis showed that the hairs on the inside of the hat were consistent with Tommy's. And Tommy's hair wasn't all they found on the hat. They found animal hair consistent with hairs found in the Anderson's car and their home that came from one of their pets. There was an odd thing that popped up in this investigation. People told the police about Jesse having committed crimes in the past, yet there were no records of any of it happening. The theft from his work, there was no police report filed. Deborah had told them about the break-ins that he allegedly committed during high school. He apparently got away with all of those. Jesse had told stories about physical fights, and the police even heard from someone that he had beaten his stepfather so violently at one point that the man was hospitalized. Even Barbara's brother told them about something that he had heard. He was a police officer, and when Barbara and Jesse started getting more serious, he did run a background check on Jesse. He learned something about a possible jail sentence, 30 days for a battery, but then the Milwaukee police, trying to look it up, found no record of it. You have to wonder if Jesse's stories of being a criminal were just that, tall tales of what a tough guy he was, or if he somehow used his salesman charm along the way to get out of these legal scrapes. Regardless of his criminal past, real or fake, Jesse was not going to be able to talk his way out of a charge of first-degree intentional homicide. And this case did not take long to go to trial. The murder occurred in April, and by August, they had a jury selected. The jury heard all about the insurance payout and the marital discord that the couple had hid from most people. They didn't hear from the counselor Barbara went to for that single session of marital counseling because the judge didn't let it in. But he did allow in a letter Barbara had written to Jesse in 1987, two years into their marriage. The letter had been found in the house, and it detailed an incident where Jesse had kicked and pushed Barbara and threatened to throw her out of the house without any money. This letter seemed to be asking for some kind of compromise and reconciliation. And of course, the jury also heard about the purchase of the knife and the hat, and the defense to this was to question the identifications of Jesse Anderson as the purchaser. The defense stood by Jesse's story that he and Barbara were attacked by two random strangers. 
and called to the stand the one witness who said she saw two black men running away from the scene. Jesse did not testify in his own defense, which did surprise me a little, since he was the only eyewitness to the attack. I assumed he would get on the stand and tell his version of the story. But it seems like he was willing to let his police statements speak for him, which did prevent the prosecution from being able to cross-examine him. The jury took the case and they deliberated for nine hours, after which they found Jesse Anderson guilty of murder. And Barbara's family, including her surviving five brothers and one sister, cheered. With this verdict came a mandatory life sentence, but it was still up to the judge to determine when Jesse would be eligible for parole. Jesse was 35 years old, and the minimum non-parole period would give him a chance at getting out of prison one day. But the maximum would mean he would very likely spend the rest of his life in prison. So there was a lot at stake. At the sentencing hearing, Jesse spoke, though he had not taken the stand at trial. He said he was a scapegoat and that this was a farce of a trial. He said he would continue looking for the real killers and that he loved and missed Barbara. The judge did not believe his denials and said Jesse was not only a brutal murderer, he also used fear and racism to try to get away with this crime. He set Jesse's earliest parole at 60 years, meaning Jesse would be 95 before he even had a chance at getting out of prison. After the trial, Barbara's family said they had no idea about how emotionally abusive Jesse had been. They didn't know that he had been physically abusive at least once, as mentioned in Barbara's letter. They knew that Jesse was able to operate like this because of the silence, and they started a charity in Barbara's name to raise money for organizations that fought domestic violence and helped remove the stigma so that more victims would speak up. Meanwhile, Jesse was behind bars maintaining his innocence. A year after the murder, he gave a tearful, exclusive interview to the Milwaukee Journal. This article also mentioned that he was on work detail in the recreation department alongside Milwaukee's most famous killer, Jeffrey Dahmer. And this was not the first time Jeffrey Dahmer had come up in regards to Jesse Anderson. The earliest mention I found goes back to the surplus store where Jesse bought the knife. That was the same store where Jeffrey Dahmer had purchased a mallet, and this detail was not missed by journalists. Another time their names were in print together was shortly after the trial ended. A Milwaukee psychiatrist named George B. Palermo gave his opinion that Jesse hadn't stabbed himself to cover for a murder, but because he intended this to be a murder-suicide. And I thought this was an interesting theory. The motive was that the marriage was failing, and Jesse couldn't take the stress of losing the vision of the perfect marriage and perfect family. He decided to kill himself and Barbara, but he staged it that way so that his insurance policy would still pay out to the children. 
But when it came time to stab himself, Jesse found it too hard. He had two hesitation wounds, and then when he finally stabbed himself hard enough to do damage, he was really hurt and he couldn't do it again. Now, Dr. Palermo did not interview Jesse. There was no psychiatric component to his defense since his defense was, I didn't do it. And I'm not sure that this theory will really hold up to deep scrutiny, but the reason I bring it up is that Dr. Palermo had interviewed Jeffrey Dahmer and testified at his trial, which the article about his theory of the crime noted. And of course, Dahmer was mentioned in articles about Jesse Anderson's case when there were discussions about race and policing. There are accusations that racism, xenophobia, and homophobia were why the Milwaukee police didn't spring into action over missing gay men of color or respond to the Black woman who repeatedly called the police on Dahmer. I will be completely honest here, I don't know the Jeffrey Dahmer case beyond the surface level, but I do know Dahmer was arrested not even a full year before Barbara Anderson was murdered. So there were people wondering if the Milwaukee police were more mindful not to jump to believing Jesse's story on the surface because the accusations of racism in the investigation dealing with Dahmer's case were still so fresh. It's so interesting to see their names in print connected so early on in the Anderson case because in the article since then, you will not see Jesse Anderson's name without Jeffrey Dahmer's next to it. But we're not quite there yet. From behind bars, Jesse Anderson hired a private investigator. Barbara's family was pushing to have his parental rights terminated, which he didn't want. He was hoping to find new evidence that he could use to appeal on and get home to his kids. This P.I. did find two new witnesses. They both said that they saw three black men attack the Andersons at the mall that night. In August of 1994, a judge granted a hearing so she could hear the testimony from these new witnesses. But by the time the hearing came around, one witness had already admitted he had lied, and the second one was so inconsistent on the stand that the case was thrown out halfway through the testimony. But Jesse's legal battles were not over yet. He was preparing to fight a wrongful death lawsuit Barbara's family had filed on behalf of the children. It looked like the case may be settled because Jesse had offered to sign an agreement that he would never profit from the case. At a hearing on November 14, 1994, the judge postponed the proceedings until 1995, but the case would actually end rather abruptly two weeks later. On November 28th, Jesse went to clean the gym bathrooms in the prison as part of his work detail in the recreation department. With him was Jeffrey Dahmer and Christopher Scarver, a man convicted of a 1990 murder. The three were alone for about 20 minutes when a guard noticed Scarver was back in his cell. He was asked why he stopped working early, and he said, 
quote, God told me to do it. You will hear about it on the six o'clock news. Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer are dead, end quote. The guards rushed into the bathrooms where the men had been working and found both of them had been beaten with a metal bar taken from the weight room. They were rushed to the hospital and Dahmer died about an hour later. Jesse Anderson, like his wife Barbara, hung on for two days before being removed from life support. It was speculated heavily in the beginning that the two may have been targeted due to the racial issues in their cases, Jesse Anderson having blamed Black men for his crime and Jeffrey Dahmer having largely targeted Black men. But Christopher Scarver's own story on why he did it has not been consistent. He did claim at one point that Dahmer was unrepentant for what he had done and taunted other inmates over it, saying things like, I bite. These stories of Dahmer making jokes about his crimes have been disputed, and some say he was actually a meek person who was very unlikely to be that bold in prison. As for Jesse, one of the motives given was linked back to blaming Black men for his crime, but also for allegedly defacing a painting another inmate made of Martin Luther King. Christopher Scarver was mentally ill and had delusions, believing he was the chosen one and that God spoke to him with a literal voice. So it's not clear if either men did the things he accused them of or if he did sincerely believe that they did. Scarver eventually pleaded no contest in a deal that had him transferred to federal prison to serve his three life sentences. He is currently back in a state prison facility, but out in Colorado, not Wisconsin. Because Jesse Anderson was killed at the same time as a well-known serial killer, his name is mentioned in those articles often. But his victim, Barbara Lynch Anderson, The fun-loving, dedicated mother to three kids is often not even mentioned. If she is, she's often just referred to as the murdered wife. But I have to say that her family really speaks to the values of their family and of Barbara with their public statement on Jesse's death. They said the same thing they said when Barbara was killed, that no one deserves a brutal death, and their primary focus remained on the surviving children who had lost both of their parents to violence in just two and a half years. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.